morning. Wow, you're awake-ish. I haven't even had coffee. I have adrenaline going. That's my benefit here. Um, so I do work in San Francisco, and uh, I did earn my certified pain educator credential at this conference some years back. Uh, and I think education is hugely important. I think we should get paid for educating our patients. I think we should have you know, lobbyists over in Washington, D.C. and make sure that what we're doing day to day actually gets counted because I'm one of those clinicians who believes education is therapy. And, and the neuroscience actually proves that. So people's brains change, their beliefs change, their physiology changes, and yours can too. So I'm gonna ask you guys something really hard this morning really hard, okay? I want you to put down your phones and your tablets and just watch and listen. Because we break our concentration every time we look down and up and down and up and are too busy following all the different cues we have in the room. And I tr trust me, you will take more away if you don't look at the stuff in front of you. And I'm not gonna punish anyone who chooses to do that, but, but give it a try. It's really hard. I was using the app all through yesterday's sessions and the days before, um, but I'm just going to give you that, that challenge this morning. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about myself and my path. I think it's valuable for you to understand that I didn't come to this educating patients about pain um, very intentionally. I didn't get great pain education in my doctorate program, and I know that, that many of you didn't get great pain education before choosing to go into the pain field. And I, frankly, was frightened of working in pain management because I was, I was educated in a pretty solidly structuralist framework. And as a physical therapist, we're taught so much about anatomy and kinesiopathology. We learn a lot about physiology and pathophysiology, but C fibers and A fibers were all I really knew. And those equaled pain. And that, in fact, is false. So if that challenges your beliefs, just that statement that nociception equals pain, then I'm really glad you're here today. I'm really glad you're here. So um, I am, did anyone go to the, the four-panel talk, the guys from Pennsylvania, maybe some are here this morning. Dr. Cheadle said, it's really hard to find a physical therapist who's passionate about pain management, and that's me. And I know a number of others are here at this conference, and the network is growing. And I hope that you leave this morning's talk feeling more uh, in, engaged in the work that you do and interested in helping patients in a different way because that's what I think pain science education can do. When people come to see us, they want to know four things. They want to know, why do I hurt? They want to know, how long is it going to take for me to feel better? And they want to know what you can do to help me and I, they want to know what I can do to help me. So pain science education will bridge a lot of what you already do in clinic. It will help you reframe things that you know really well how to do that work empirically or anecdotally. <laughs> and it will make the conversation shift away from what can you do to fix your patients to what can they do to really feel better and start to recover. I actually don't use the term pain management very much in my practice and I don't use the term chronic pain very much. People don't know the difference between chronic and acute pain, and pain is pain. I mean, there are some changes in the nervous system that are significant in a chronic pain state, but what I'm talking about today is not just chronic pain. Pain science is the same whether it's acute pain or chronic pain. We all have nervous systems. So I don't have any financial uh, conflicts to disclose, but I do work for the 
the Department of Veterans Affairs, and my views expressed today are my own as a clinician, as a CPE, as someone very interested in helping patients who suffer with pain every day, but they don't necessarily represent any official position of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, and the task force member thing, that's just a volunteer activity, so I'm pretty vested in figuring out how we can uh, reduce the disability related to low back pain, and I think that beliefs and understanding of what pain is and what it isn't is a really big part of moving that process forward. Crossing the chasm I'm going to talk about a little bit later. It just means that we are on the cusp of huge change. I think we can do much better in pain care. I think we can help people change pain. I don't think we need to learn, teach them how to just live with the pain that they have. I really think we can change pain, and I've seen it happen. Uh, but it's scary. It's like I said, I was frightened when I went into this this job that I have now because I didn't understand pain and I didn't know how to help people who were living with pain every single day. But I'm figuring it out. So this morning I'm going to tell you why the role of the nervous system is important and why you should be telling your patients about the nervous system when you talk about pain and not about anatomy. Anatomy matters somewhat, but that's not the focus of the conversation and it never should be when it comes to pain. That's my opinion. I'm going to talk about um, some of the basic physiological factors that contribute to a pain experience, and you've heard the biopsychosocial model pitched a lot at this conference already. It's been around since the 70s, and there has been very significant research. In 2009, there was a, a study, you can look up Garland and Howard, did a review of all the biopsychosocial uh, paradigm shifts to that date, and there's compelling evidence to show that definitely our psychological forces will shape our neurobiology, so you know, don't discount that when you're treating patients. I'm going to review some current research that highlights why it's beneficial. We have a robust body of research that shows us when you teach people about the physiology of pain, they do better for a number of reasons. And I'm going to help you feel confident, have a couple of little pearls to walk away with so you can start changing your own conversations in clinic. But I want to put a caveat to that last objective. Educating patients about pain is really, really hard. If you don't understand pain yourself, you won't do a good job of educating others. So I encourage you to take the chance after this week to go back and really dig in on what you know about how pain works, because your beliefs are changing everything about how you interact with your patients, and they will influence patient outcomes. And I had to work really hard on my beliefs. I was a sports medicine-oriented person. I was all about structuralism. And that doesn't get you very far when you're working with people who have had the surgeries, who have had the structures fixed, who never had problems that required surgery in the beginning, who never had an injury, and they have debilitating pain. How do we explain that? I'm going to help you. You know what? Before I do this, I'm going to take you on a little sensory experience. So for those who are just walking in, good morning, welcome, thank you. And I want you to, if you can, for the duration of my talk this morning, just leave your tablets sort of on the table in front of you and, and resist the urge to look up and down all the time. And I want you to imagine, picture, that I'm holding a bright yellow, perfectly shaped lemon in my hand. Okay, can you see it? And I happen to go by the kitchen and pick up a knife. And I'm now going to slice through the rind of that lemon. And I bet the people in the front row can even feel the spritz. Right? I'm slicing, and I'm going all, and you can see the juice dripping down my hand. Okay, it's really ripe, juicy lemon. Put that knife away. Right? I'm going to open that up, and you see the juice dripping from both hands now. And I'm going to take a big bite. And I want to know, 
Who felt that in their mouth? Whose parotid gland got active? Fantastic. Look how powerful your nervous system is. All I did was cue your brain to things that you recognize, and your mouth got ready to eat something really acidic. And the same thing happens in pain. And don't kid yourselves. This is happening all the time. <laughs> Thank you. So this study from the 1980s is pretty uh, astounding, actually. If you don't know about this, here's the setup. I'm sure they wouldn't get IRB approval for this. So today, that is. So <laughs> it was a double-blinded study, very interesting method. So the patients were undergoing a dental surgery. They were having their gum tissue scraped, scaled, and then the pain test was to put in a little electric current to shock and ask them how much it hurt. And they had a bunch of qualifying words, things to describe, and they had a grip, uh, uh, some sort of measurement of how hard they gripped when they were experiencing that pain, okay? And what's curious about this is they did the procedure, and then they asked the patients to rate their pain with that electric shock an hour later and 10 minutes after the procedure. So 10 minutes after, an hour after, and those are the measurements that were taken. But what's cool about this is the setup was the patients were told, we're going to give you one of three different medicines. You won't know which one it is. The medications might decrease the pain, might increase the pain, or they might have no effect at all. The clinicians were told there are two conditions. You either have a group that's going to have placebo or naloxone, and naloxone basically renders uh, fentanyl kind of inactive, for those who don't know, or you're going to have a condition where they could have a 50-50 chance of getting an analgesic. So 100%, the, the, the dentists were told, and by the way, they were told that um, when the patients were going to get the uh, which condition. So, no, that can't be right because it was double-blinded. But the, the physicians basically said in this condition, there's 100% chance they're not going to have an analgesic. And in this condition, there's a 50% chance they're going to have an analgesic. And what mattered, what mattered for the outcomes was not the patient's state of mind, but the clinicians, the two placebo, placebo groups here, differed only in that, see this is pain on the scale of zero to eight, they did a negative scale here. And the top part of the graph here, after an hour, look at how this is the group where the clinicians thought they had a 100% chance of not getting any drug that had an analgesic effect. And their pain was much higher at 10 minutes post-procedure and at 60 minutes post-procedure. But those patients where the clinician thought they had a 50-50 chance of getting the analgesic, they did better. This is a three-point on a pain scale, a visual analog scale, it's a three-point spread. That is huge. And what's really curious about this is the clinicians and the patients were observed, well, they were videotaped during this, and third-party observers were asked to watch the videos and tell the researchers who they thought were getting the drug and who they weren't. And they couldn't tell. So whatever was going on between those two nervous systems was imperceptible by a third-party observer, but something was happening. The clinician's beliefs impacted the patient's pain post-procedure. So every time you are interacting with a patient, think about how you start that interaction. Think about where you look what you ask them. Do you shake their hand? Do you look in their eye? Do you ask them about their back pain or their knee pain? The first thing they come into your clinic, is that what you start the conversation with or not? 
I have, the more I've studied about pain science and the impact that it has, can I keep that dark? Can I, yeah? I do that on purpose, sorry. <laughs> the more I study this stuff, the more I am sensitive to my own behavior, the minutia, because that's giving every little cue, every, every one of us has a brain that's picking up on little cues everywhere we go, and the environment matters. And so I want you to be thinking about how you interact with your patients from anything from this example. I frequently, as a physical therapist, people come to my office, and I work in a clinic now where I see everybody that's downstream in the medical system. That means they've gone to the specialty clinics, they've had the surgeries, they've had the injections, or they're being evaluated for new injections because the ones they had didn't help. Or they've had physical therapy and they've failed physical therapy. These are my patients every day, 100%. So I'm very careful. If somebody takes records into the clinic and they say to me, well, here, I got an MRI. I will take that and I will say, thank you. We'll talk about that later. But I don't make a face. And I don't say, oh, let me look at that first because that's most important. Because we know that scans don't tell us much about pain. And all they can do is tell us what's not happening. Okay? So does everyone know what nociception is? Anyone brave enough to say that you don't know that word? Okay, good. So it makes sense why we, why we think fits our model of understanding why nociception equals pain. And this is frankly what I was taught, C-fibers. And you will still find this in every reference online just about, um, every textbook just about, nociception equals pain. If the C-fibers or the A-delta fibers are active, then you get pain, right? And they're called pain fibers. And I personally think we need to obliterate that term because it's confusing and misleading. We can have nociception with pain. We can have nociception without pain. We can have a ton of nociception without pain. You're having nociception right now in your rear, right? But that doesn't mean you have pain, okay? But here's what went on in the 1960s. Now, this is, this is an image from uh, the fifth edition of Melzack and Wall's textbook. And frankly, I really wish that my graduate program had required this book instead of Gray's Anatomy. We all had to pay 200-some dollars for that doorstop, and I, I really, I never cracked it once. But anatomy is really important. We learned a lot about it on the practical level, but pain I learned very little about, okay? So here's what happened. The physiolo physiologists here, you know, if you put a, a really hot thermal uh, input on somebody's skin and hold it there for 30 seconds, they'll tell you it hurts for 30 seconds. They have nervous systems that work. Their alarm system is doing the job, okay? And then when physiologists figured out how to measure what's going on, in those tiny little free nerve endings. Nociceptors are free nerve endings that we can access and measure, okay? Then they said, oh, they're these C-fibers things. We're gonna call these unmyelinated, high-threshold things C-fibers, and we notice that the person has pain the entire 30 seconds, but the C-fiber is only really, really active at first, and then it tapers off. And that didn't make a whole lot of sense until they found A-delta fibers, which sort of has the opposite pattern, right? So in the beginning, it takes a while to get interested in the input, but then it stays really interested and it stays active. So you put those two together, and the two bottom uh, images combined will kind of match the top one. So that makes sense why we must have thought nociception equals pain. But how realistic are these studies? People signing up for pain studies, the setup in the, in the research centers, there are so many different factors that we might not have any idea what kind of influence they had on these kinds of research um, investigations. And we know pain is much, much more complicated than this. We know that. 
how is it that you can sit here and have an imagined experience of a lemon and your mouth waters? How can we have that experience and think that someone who's feeling pain by just thinking about lifting the box from the garage, how is that pain not any more real than your mouth watering? It is. Of course it is. So pain is not the only output that our brain gives us to make sense of our experience in the world. In 2004, this social science research group did a really interesting study that I sh I'm sure influenced a lot of food scientists and food marketers. So what they did was they took, in, in fact, Pringles. I didn't put the branded picture up there, but it was the Pringles brand. They took potato chips, and they had people taste them one by one and rate them one by one. How fresh is this? What are the qualities you, you notice about this chip? And they were in a soundproof booth. They had headphones that were feeding in the auditory feedback from whatever chip they were chewing. Okay? We know what that sounds like when we chew food in our own mouths, right? But in this experiment, they were sound engineering that audio feedback and manipulating the experience of the chips. So the batch of chips were exactly the same, but they were rated very different in terms of freshness and quality, just based on the pitch and some of the tweaks that they were making with the sound. So those auditory cues will have a direct influence on your taste experience. Your tongue never ever just provides the brain with information from the taste buds to provide you with the taste experience, and the same is true with paint. So in 2007, this research group from Australia, Laura Mosley is one of the most published researchers. He's a neuroscientist and a physical therapist, in fact. So if you don't know his work, I would encourage you strongly to look into it. Their group took people, again, how normal were they? They volunteered for a pain study. But they put a cold metal rod on the back of these people's hands, and they said, you tell us how much it hurts. Zero to 10, our same old zero to 10 scale. What they didn't tell these subjects were, was that sometimes a red light would flash at the same time as the touch, and sometimes a blue light would flash. And with the exception of one person, here's the zero to 10, look at how much higher their pain is when the red was present. The one person sort of flatlined. That was a threatening input no matter what color was present. Maybe you had a needle phobia, I don't know. But here you see zero to 10, red makes it hurt more. Why? because red means something different, right? Red is a warning sign in our society. Red lights, stop signs, fire, danger, explosives, all red. And blue, what do we do? We paint our walls in the clinic blue if we want to calm people down. Viagra is blue because it actually has an effect on our physiology and our cardiovascular system. And they don't want people to overdo it. Did you know that? So. Nociception is a very powerful modulator of pain. I am not here to say that nociception doesn't matter. It absolutely does, but that is not the only thing that matters. And you should never think that's the only thing that matters when you're working with people in pain, whether it's acute pain or chronic pain. So context matters so much more than you may realize. And you are all context architects. How you set up your clinic. Ask your patients next time they come to you and they say, physical therapy just made it hurt worse. Ask them what the environment was like. Did they have a busy clinic bustling people everywhere and some people in the corner screaming because they were getting their knee cranked on? Or did they have lights that were blazing? I mean, now if I have somebody that I need to examine in a supine position, I turn the overhead lights out. I have alternate lighting in my room and I tell them why I'm doing it because I don't want their nervous system to take that as a threatening cue. They're on their backs, it's a vulnerable position. 
That's a threat, and that can affect pain. So clinical exams that we're taught and trained to do to test contractile tissues or joint structures, yeah, they're, those are all well and good, but they're not completely reliable if you're not taking into account all these other factors. Meaning, expectation, experience, beliefs is a big one. So when I'm teaching patients about pain, I will use my own self as an example. And it's very important, by the way, when you're teaching people about pain to challenge concepts and not people. Challenge concepts and not people, because people will get defensive very quickly. And some of you in the room right now might be feeling that, and that's good. So beliefs. When I'm teaching patients, one of the things I'm using right now, I teach this a lot, so it changes month to month, but I say, and this is true, I believe that humans should not eat bugs. I believe I should not eat bugs on purpose. That's a belief I have, okay? So if you were to fry up some crispy critters, which is en vogue in some places, maybe Vegas now, I don't know, you put some crickets on a platter and you say, this is the hottest new thing in culinary cuisine and it's artistic and it's high protein and it's low fat, okay? My nervous system will do everything it can to keep that thing from going in my mouth. I don't know about you, but it will not let me do it. And there was a whole show on this, the fear factor, right? Our nervous systems are telling us not to do things all the time. And pain is just one of those outputs of this multifaceted system, okay? So if I believe that bugs shouldn't go in there, and you try to give me a thing that looks like a bug, it will not go in there. But if you crush up those crispy critters, make a powder out of them, put them in a brownie recipe, feed me brownies, I will happily eat those because I believe those are brownies and not bugs and my nervous system will be fine with that. So whatever our patients are believing about what's going on inside their bodies or what's gonna happen in the clinic or what happened in the past, our nervous system is protecting against all sorts of things and it's sophisticated enough to recognize things that may remind the brain of things in the past that were dangerous and factor into the current situation. So have you ever had patients who come to you and say, Doc, I don't, I don't understand, my back is always really painful at this time of day. I don't know why it's not when I come to see you. Well, maybe they feel safe in your clinic. They've taken the action the brain thinks they should take, and that, that pain alarm quiets down. Surgeons know that if you show people the little bits that they took out of the spine or the knee or whatever they needed to clean up in there that was causing the pain, people do better. And there's a study that really took a close look at that. Right? I'm not going to go into the sham surgery data today, but that's fascinating. Blows beliefs out of the water on what we think is happening with surgery. And I, I, I'm so happy we have surgeons. This is not a dig on surgeons. My brother-in-law is a fantastic one. But I think we're overutilizing it. And we're holding it on a pinnacle saying, this is the end game of what will fix you if all this other stuff doesn't work. But what's happening in a surgical procedure? Why do people get better when nothing is taken out or nothing is sewed up or nothing is actually fixated with screws and plates. Why do some people get better if it's a sham surgery they didn't in fact invade any of the joint capsules to do that? Because any credible evidence of danger will increase your likelihood to experience pain and any credible evidence of safety will increase your likelihood to not have so much pain. So in the work that I do, in the work that my team does, where we, where we all work together very hard at helping people understand this stuff, we work every single day to help patients boost their safety signs and minimize their danger signs. And I'm talking their whole life long. And the folks I see, as I said, have had years 
of experiences with clinicians in multiple specialty clinics, lots of PT sessions, lots of opportunities for somebody to give them credible evidence of danger that something's not okay in their body. And I wonder, I question how much of that was really valid. I've had to go through a lot of, a lot of personal challenge to change how I think about things, change the framework in which I explain things to patients. Because I, it made sense. When I went through my training, it made sense that mechanical things break down, and when they do, our body tells us. Okay? But how can that be if so many people we know have serious degenerative changes and they're asymptomatic? We know this data. It's undeniable, right? So we're at a crossroads in pain management. We absolutely have to rethink how we're doing things. And I'm not going to ask you at all to change what you do. Your skills are unique. I use manual therapy. I teach core stabilization for those who came to my talk on Tuesday. It's not that I don't do it. But I talk about it differently. The reason why I'm doing it is not because they have an unstable spine, for example. Or the reason why I'm doing manual therapy technique is not because I have to stretch their fascia or reposition their bones. People want their pelvises repositioned all the time. Because other therapists have told them, you're crooked here and you're, you're off there and I'll do a five-minute thing and you'll feel better. Well, they didn't fix the pelvis alignment in those five minutes, but they changed the nervous system 100% they had a calming effect on that nervous system and it can change pain. So pain management is in a bit of a crisis and I'm so glad everybody came to this conference. You're all here because you want to learn how to do better and I think we can. We've got to change how we think about things. Sorry, that font should have been white. It didn't turn out. So when I first attended the conference, Dr. Carr was the keynote speaker and I was very impressed by this. And yeah, we embrace the biopsychosocial model in theory. But do we do that in practice? Or do we think that really, if they don't have a structural thing, well then maybe it's just a heavier influence on living with pain that changes their psychology and then that in turn changes their social circle and that spirals out of control. I think, and I think the science clearly shows, that long before people have chronic pain, their nervous systems are collecting information and changing whether they have acute pain or not. Okay? We know. Everybody here has probably woken up someday with a bruise or a cut and don't remember getting it. Well, that's injury without pain, nociception without pain. But we're still too heavy on the bio. And even those of us who work really hard not to be, we're on an uphill battle here because patients expect you to fix their biology. They still do. And it's not to say that every person who gets education from someone who's practiced it a lot will walk away understanding things. The challenge is that you're going to have to use whatever skills you have. I don't need you to change that. But talk about it in a different way. So a colleague of mine who works for the Department of Defense, Jason Silvernail, Silvernail pardon me, this is black, it should have been white, hard to see. Crossing the chasm is just a concept that says, use what you know, do what you do, frame it around the nervous system, because even mechanical problems, structural instability, those still have a nervous system around it. Okay? So everything matters. Just want to point out that the nervous system might matter more. So opposed to the Lusser model, which I put up a few slides ago, which has nociception in the center as the origin, the onion skin model is what I use. Nociception is there. It's a very powerful modulator of pain. But it's not the only thing. 
right? All these things will influence pain, and all of them are going to be directly influenced by pain. So, Rene Descartes, who knows about him? Rene Descartes? No? Really? Not enough. Oh, wow. This is one of the first models for understanding pain that unfortunately is still used a lot today to explain it. It's very dualistic. Rene Descartes had a profound idea back in 1684, something like that. And basically what he said was there must be some hydraulic system that takes this message of fire or damage or whatever, turns it to pain and brings it to the brain. And when it reaches perception, when pain is perceived in the brain, then we feel it. Notice. Pain from the body, pain travels somehow, and only when our brain perceives the pain do we feel it. That's the Cartesian model of pain, and it is flatly false. It doesn't apply anymore. It was very helpful for a long time. People did surgeries, try to cut through the spinal cord or cut out patches of skin from post-herpetic neuralgia, thinking that would help pain that happened in the 70s. Can you have body parts not even attached and have them hurt? Of course you can. You know that. And they're not just exceptional humans that have something really haywire in their nervous systems. If that were the case, mirror therapy wouldn't work at all. Right? So it's not a telephone line that we can just cut. Imagine if we could just block the pain message from getting to the brain, how simple it would be. We would have figured it out and we wouldn't have the epidemic we have now. But that's not how it works. Right? So our bodies are much more like a thermostat where input influences output, which modifies input, which modulates output. All of this is a cycle that's continuous. And if you went to uh, Heather Tick's talk, the first one, um, not the nutrition talk, but the other one, she talked about having an internal ability to heal and recover. And when I talk to patients about their bodies, I use the term ecosystem. I don't use levers and... Uh, muscles so much. I do talk about muscles, but not nearly as much as I did. We're an ecosystem, and everything influences everything else. So how do you explain pain when somebody comes in your office and you say, I don't, they say to you, I don't understand why I have pain when I did the same amount of activity today that I did yesterday, and it hurt so much more. I don't get that, because you can't think just mechanical. There are so many physiological reasons why that person may have pain. Someone has pain that starts in a high-stress event, like being chased by a stranger. What was that movie in the 1980s? I don't know, someone, the trucker was chasing some poor guy on the highway the whole entire movie. You remember that? I, I wish I could, my husband would shame me for this. I'm so bad at remembering titles of things. And yes, duel, exactly. God, I'm sweating thinking about that movie, right? <laughs> So high-stress situation like that, the physiology changes. We actually have nociceptors that build in more receptors that respond to adrenaline. So then every time after that experience, the person releases stress hormones, they can have pain. And sometimes it takes 7 to 10 days for that to occur. So if you don't understand physiology of pain, you're going to have a really hard time explaining it to your patients, and they're going to walk away not knowing what the heck to do. And you're going to feel like you didn't do a good job, but you... Do the best you can. So in the late 1990s, early 2000s, this guy, who was about 20 years ahead of his time, came up with what's called the mature organism model. And this is what I, what I use a lot. In some of the talks I give, I show you how I actually doodle this out on my whiteboard when I'm teaching patients. And there should be a body attached, right? So I'm not meaning to stand here and say that the brain is all that matters. It's not true. But what happens here is... 
Input comes in from the body and the environment, so the stuff going on inside, the stuff going on around you, and the brain has to scrutinize all of that in a split second and make some sort of judgment about it and decide whether action is necessary. So when I tell you about nociception happening in your rears, right, unless I point it out to you, you might not be taking any action. Where some of you have been shifting already, you've been sitting long enough, that there's some compression that's probably a little dangerous, so your brain gives you a cue to move around. Action taken. Alarm turned off. Okay, but what goes on here is not just the perception of pain, right? Pain does not come from the body. It's not a thing that exists in there. Nociception comes from the body. But so do all sorts of bits of information from the skin, from structures under the skin, proprioceptors, right? And the A-beta fibers that, that Dr. Glick was talking about in the pain terminology Jeopardy game, if any of you were there. Those can, some of the newest research tells us that A-beta fibers can flip and act like nociceptors in chronic pain states in some people. So just moving can be associated with a very dangerous activity and produce pain. So our brain samples itself, right? So this is why two people with the same exact mechanical injury, perhaps in the same car, in the same accident, will not have the same outcomes, right? Because their brain has its own set of knowledge and beliefs, its own culture attached, not just the culture where we grew up in our country of origin, but our family culture, our friend culture, our professional culture. Past successful behaviors, right? And past successful behaviors that we observe in others. Why do kids look to their parents when they fall and skin their knees? Why do they do that? They don't all immediately cry with a huge laceration or an abrasion. They don't all do that. We try to understand the meaning of it. And adult humans do that too, which is part of the problem when we see these codependent family dynamics that may perpetuate the issues and make the pain problem worse on a social level. So, which one hurts more? When I show this slide to patients, everybody says the shark. And if you went to Gary J's talk yesterday, when the shark bites, your brain might now associate that image with central pain syndromes, and your brain might say, well, that hurts a lot, right? But what do these pictures say? The baby bite clearly hurts a lot more than the puppy bite, because it's about meaning and belief and context, you know? Puppies, we know play. We know they play with their jaws. We know they do a little nip, right, little love bites. Babies, we're not sure they know how to control that thing can hurt a lot. If it's not your baby, man. So tissue damage does not match pain much of the time. We know this and we forget it when we're talking to patients and I don't understand why. So can you think of a time in your own life where you had major damage or someone you know had major damage, like more than just a paper cut, which by the way hurts a lot and it's tiny, right? More than a paper cut but little or no pain. Maybe no pain is better. Anyone have one example they can share? And if not, I've got one. Or pain much later. Yeah, in the back. Thank you. Okay. So that's an example of definite tissue damage and definite pain. How about an example of definite tissue damage and no pain? Uh-huh, soccer, slide tackle, metal cleats in the leg. To you, yeah. To me, 
Right. 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 She was in the middle of the game, not thinking about it. Other priorities. Our nervous system works on a priority basis. Right. And when did it start to hurt? Did it ever? A few hours later, it did. Okay. Ten minutes. Okay. Right. So we got to stop trying to fit this square peg in a round hole and think injury is all that matters. And I know so many of you know that it doesn't matter as much, but we still try to hold on to that. We still try to figure out how to fit what we see into that model. Right? But there's plenty of evidence that tells us when we explain pain from a neuroscience perspective to people, they do better in a number of objective measures and self-report questionnaires, and it saves money. So back to policy changing. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we got to start trying to do this, getting education as therapy recognized. Because, I mean, PTs have done this for years. We're always trying to figure out how can we charge a neuromuscular re-education code. And be, really, what we're doing is talking to them. Or they're doing an exercise, and we really just want to teach them how to do this better at home. And it's not what they're doing in the clinic that matters so much, but what we're teaching them. But we have to charge for what they do in front of us. Yeah, question? I use the 9800 series for non-physician self-care education code, but I don't. Awesome. Thank you. Find that guy and find the code he uses. That's great. Right? So here's what's interesting. Number three here, multi-center study that was published a few years back. And what they did was take patients who were already planning to have lumbar fusion surgery for radiculopathy and, and severe debilitating back pain, and they split them into two groups. They decided one group was going to get the normal usual care, preoperative pre education, whatever that is, and they were going to get pain science education on this other arm. Now, the outcomes in terms of how much pain they had when they checked 12 months later wasn't that much different, but their function was different and their satisfaction with the surgery was different, and... Their utilization of healthcare services in the pain science education group was 45% less. So all those follow-up visits and the chiropractic visits and the PT visits that cost a lot of money and keep these people from living their lives despite pain, we can change that. So chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, people do better. So this is measuring in box A uh, people's knowledge base in the beginning. So let's see, the, the dotted line here is going to be the pacing, no, the pain education group and the solid line is going to be a pacing group. So these two groups were randomized um, and one treatment intervention was classic pacing that you might get in a CBT format and the other was pain science education using information from the Explain Pain book published in 2003, Laura Mermosley and David Butler. So um, what we found is that people with pain science education have less catastrophizing, they cope better, they ruminate less, and they distract themselves less day to day. They don't need to. So what's the content? Nociception, nociceptive pathway, pathways. I teach people nociception. I teach them that word. I to their heads. I teach them it's not the same as pain. It usually goes along with pain, but it's not the same thing. And I'm not going to read through the rest of this. You, can, you have the slides later on to look at. This is a knowledge quiz. I'm going to very briefly read through this. I was hoping we could go through it and have you test, test your own knowledge. I know it's tiny. Um, there are different versions, 12 question, 19 question versions, and this has been validated. So, receptors on nerves work by opening ion channels in the wall of the nerve, true, false, or unsure. Think about it in your head. Receptors on nerves work by opening ion channels in the wall of the nerve. Number two, when part of your body is injured, special pain receptors convey the pain message to your brain, true or false, unsure. This is a trick question. 
because we don't have pain receptors. We have nociceptors and danger messages, but nothing that senses pain. Pain comes from the brain, right? Pain only occurs when you're injured or at risk of being injured. We know that's not true, right? Patients don't always know that's not true. Special nerves in your spinal cord convey danger messages to your brain. That's true. Central spinal nociceptors. Primary nociceptors in the body, central nociceptors in the spinal cord. Pain is not possible when there are no nerve messages coming from the painful body part. Pain occurs whenever you're injured. Huh? We know that's false. The brain sends messages down your spinal cord that can change the message going up. Yes, descending inhibition. But did you know there's also descending, or descending facilitation? We don't talk about that much. The brain can send messages to say, I really care about this input, and I need to protect you a lot if I think this is coming in, which is why little things can hurt a lot. The brain decides when you will experience pain. The answer to this, unfortunately, is yes. But I tell patients it's not really a conscious decision because I'm not trying to say you can think your way out of pain. You can't. The nervous system takes a lot of training, a lot of practice, but it can learn to do wonderful things. You know, how many hours do you have to spend throwing darts before you hit the target over and over and consistently? One hour a week ain't going to cut it, right? And you can't do your exercises or your thought tra training that the psychologists teach you in just an hour. Right? Nerves adapt by increasing the resting level of excitement. True or false? I'm not going to go through all of these, but this is a sample of what I give patients. And people, when I went to school, said you cannot teach higher than an eighth grade education level. Challenge you to rethink that, right? Give our patients more credit. Many of them are suffering because they were high achieving, high performing, highly active and involved, educated adults. Why do we have to teach them like they're, like they're not? Some people I work with are not at this level, agreed, but they can learn. So, here's a study that proves that. Not going to go through it. People can learn more than you give them credit for at a higher level. So what does this look like in terms of providing this kind of education? The research will show a slew of different formats. Anywhere from 30 minutes in one single session to four hours multiple times over the course of several months. Um, but once a week is the most common, most frequent um, session model that you'll see. And the research shows that one-on-one -on -one education tends to be a little better than in a group format, but I would say that's not my experience. So this is not a standalone treatment, okay? You've got to be doing other things too, and there's research that shows when you compare two groups that one gets just the standard manual therapy exercise, whatever it is we do that we know works, compared to a group that gets all that stuff plus pain science education, the plus gets better, more than the other one. So it's adjunct, right? So Basic things to teach patients, I would hone in on teaching them what nociception is and that it's not the same as pain. So, is it about threat? Yes. Are there priorities? Thank you, soccer story, yes. Priorities matter. We can have tissue problems and pain problems and they can be separate, right? So people who have shark bites report, it didn't hurt while it happened and thank God it didn't because I wouldn't have been able to get away. The guy up in the top corner is the basketball player, 2013, nasty compound fracture, tibia and fibula, nasty, no pain, didn't lose consciousness, didn't go into cardiovascular shock. Priorities, right? This was supposed to be white, I apologize. All these slides didn't get changed. Pain is, this is an important thing if you want to write this down, pain is a call to action, it is not a damage meter. Pain is a call to action, not a damage meter. A colleague of mine, Todd Hargrove, says that, and I love it, I use it almost every day. So if you take the action your brain thinks you need to take, going to that specialty doctor's clinic, pain might calm down or go away, bizarrely. Except not bizarrely if you took the action your brain needed to take, right? Peripheral and sensi central sensitization, I teach people what this is so I can explain hurt versus harm. 
So in chronic pain states, we know that that makes a difference. And this is how I do it. This is part of the Explain Pain book, if you want to know. I draw two peaks, and I say, before you had pain every day, you could train your body to climb this high on this mountain, and your, your body would tolerate it, right? But thank goodness we have a nervous system that tells us we, we protect ourselves. Our brain does protect us by giving us pain to stop before we go over the line and cause injury, right? But after you've had pain for a while, and especially if you stop moving around, well then, of course, your body's likely to get a little injured or more injured more easily. Tissue tolerance goes down. But what you need to know is that the protect by pain line goes down a significantly larger amount. So your system will not let you get harmed. It will not let you. But it sure feels like it's happening right then in the moment. So I point out that buffer and I say, you may have some baseline pain there and we're gonna work on getting this flare line to move closer to the tissue tolerance so you can actually go back and do that strengthening without paying for it so much later, okay? So this is what you can say. It's safe to move, so important, doctors please say this. If your physical exam does not have anything scary nasty in it, tell them it's safe to move. If you don't say those words, they do not implicitly understand that because if they walk away thinking, I just have arthritis, but how can just arthritis hurt so much? This can't make sense. It's safe to move, okay? The nervous system is wonderfully adaptable. Neuroplasticity is a fantastic thing to exploit. Your nervous system can learn to be one way and protect you too much, and it can also learn not to. But you've got to teach. Motion is lotion. You can be sore but safe. Start low. Go slow. Challenge that flare line. Don't push past it. You can't get better if you don't challenge it. But if you push through it every single time on a good day, you're going to keep that line really sensitive, okay? So patient-friendly language for you to walk home with today. We're almost done. I'm going to let you look at this. I'm not going to read everything. You have it in your slides to look at later, okay? Thoughts are nerve impulses, too. Help your psychology colleagues by telling patients this. Thoughts are nerve impulses, too, right? Sorry about the color here. Inputs are not only mechanical or chemical, but can be contextual, emotional, and cognitive. This is the wrong version of my PowerPoint presentation. I'm sorry. This is not what's supposed to be here. This is wonderful, though. So I have three metaphors for you to look at later that you can use. And metaphors are a great way to teach people about pain. We're out of time, technically, but I can just briefly tell you how, to, how I use this. So if you need to go, I, I understand. Pain is an alarm, right? Talk about it that way. Don't talk about it as it's telling you that you've been harmed or telling you that you have an injury or something wrong inside your body. Because many cancers exist without pain at all, and people die. How is that? What? Pain is an alarm. Fire alarms are helpful when they warn us about fire, but not if they're going off when you have a birthday candle on and one cupcake. Right? Interrupts life. Can't have a romantic dinner that way. Nervous system, as a computer, sensitization or diagnosing a pain problem, you can't look at a computer, take the motherboard cover off, and say, oh, I see the problem. When you hit one X, you're supposed to get one X. But in your system, when you hit one, you get 15. I look at the mother motherboard, I can't see what the problem is. I have to do a bunch of tests and things to figure it out. So x-rays and MRIs don't tell us much about pain, but they do help us understand what's not happening. So if your motherboard had a big singe spot, you could say, oh, there's the problem. All right, orchestra playing the same tune. Neurotags, these uh, clusters of nerves in our brain regions that all get excited at the same time, and they can learn. Skill acquisition happens through neurotags. So if your brain is activating the same regions over and over trying to protect you, it can get into a habit of pain, so to speak. So these are the main points that we went through. Nociception is neither sufficient nor necessary for pain production. And please try to be consistent, because the more a patient hears this message from everybody in the room, and all the parts of the healthcare system that they visit, 
the more they can start to in ingest this and change things. I think it should be a part of every comprehensive pain treatment plan in the whole continuum of healthcare, not just chronic pain. So thank you very much. Sorry I had to rush through. Thanks for coming. <laughs>